This episode of Awards Chatter is brought to you by Universal Television, presenting Girls 5 Eva. Girls 5 Eva follows a one-hit wonder 90s girl group who attempts a comeback while hilariously navigating family and relationships, plus the joys and pains of middle age. The show stars Sarah Bareilles, Renee Elise Goldsbury, Paula Pell, and Busy Phillips. Don't miss the series critics call the funniest show on television. Girls 5 Eva is now streaming on Netflix and is for your Emmy consideration for Outstanding Comedy Series and all other eligible categories. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to episode 85 of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporters Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and my guest today is Hank Azaria, the veteran character actor who's best known for his vocal talents, but who's also damn good when he's using his other tools as well. For 28 of his 52 years, he has done voices for characters like Moe, Apu, and Lou the Cop on The Simpsons, for which he's received seven Emmy nominations, four of which have resulted in wins. He's also received five other Emmy nominations, one for the Showtime series Huff, on which he played a therapist who could make everyone happy but himself, one for the TV movie version of Tuesdays with Maury, in which he starred opposite Jack Lemmon and took home a statue, and three for guest acting, twice in comedy series, namely Friends and Mad About You, and this year in a drama series, Ray Donovan. He's appeared on that Showtime series in 14 episodes since 2014 as Ed Cochran, a one-time FBI chief who loses whatever moral compass he once had and goes head-to-head with Liev Schreiber's title character. Over the course of our conversation, we talk about how Azaria found the voices he's made famous, how his schedule and salary for The Simpsons have allowed him to be choosy about the other work that he does, from comedies like Mike Nichols' The Birdcage to dramas like Robert Redford's Quiz Show, his frustration that a number of his other TV series haven't worked, and the great pleasure he derives from playing a guy on Ray Donovan who just doesn't care what anyone else thinks. So without further ado, here in his own voice is Hank Azaria. Hank, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. To begin with, we always ask, where were you born and raised, and what did your folks do for a living? I was uh, born in New York City, raised in Queens, 20 minutes out of New York City. My dad was in the garment industry. Worked in the fashion district in New York. Had a had a few businesses. Had his own companies. My mom, she actually worked uh, before she got married. She worked in publicity at Columbia Pictures in New York. Yeah, she's bilingual. We're Sephardic Jews, and they both speak Spanish. My parents and she worked in the South American distribution and publicity. She loved it. My parents both loved show business. I think my mom always regrets not staying. She, that wasn't an era where women pursued careers right. too much after they were married. But I think my mom wishes that she had. She really loves show business. So for you, do you remember when you were first attracted to the idea of being a part of show business? Was there something that happened that, that turned you on to it? Well, like I say, my family were huge, huge show business aficionados for everything from whatever silly sitcom was on to opera 
you know, highbrow and lowbrow, they loved it all, like almost really fanatically. So I grew up in that environment, certainly loving that as well. And I was a mimic, really, ever since I was a kid. And I would imitate Steve Martin, George Carlin, whatever I saw on TV or, or heard. I didn't realize until I was a teenager that obsessively imitating and memorizing dialogue right. and monologues and being able to do it pretty well meant I might want to be an actor. <laughs> then at the time I was like 15, 16, I did a few things in school and got encouraged to keep trying it. And did in college and loved, spent like all my time in the theater in college. And by the time I graduated, realized I'd regret it if I didn't give it a shot as a young man. Never really expecting to make it because who makes it, you know, (laughs) but then, you know, got lucky. And so in terms of getting lucky, though, you you graduated from Tufts. How did you wind up in L.A.? And what was that initial transition like? For a lot of people, it's just a rough go of it. It doesn't happen immediately. Yeah, I went to New York at first uh, thinking I would do theater. Couldn't get arrested in the theater. I was only there for like nine or 10 months. I think I tested for a soap opera. And the one job I got was a few lines on a television show that was shot out here. That got me my SAG card. I was working with a very, very small, really kind of kid's agent, young person's agent in New York. I mean, I was 22. Mm -hmm. And... They were working with an office in L.A., and the agent in L.A. said, come out, I'll, I'll send you out for pilot season if you come out. I took him at his word, took my last, like, few hundred bucks, came out to L.A., and he didn't even remember me. <laughs> and it was only because the agent in New York that I worked with got angry at him that he was like, all right, all right, we'll send him out on a few things. And I, I got lucky, and I booked something, a pilot, in my first few months of being sent out. I don't know about other people. I had a series of very small, very lucky breaks. Like, I'm like a dozen or so along the way. And these are things like, I think your first episodic TV gig was Family Ties? If not the first, one of the first. And just a number of things like that. Yeah, I mean, back then, this is now the late 80s, 86 and after. I remember because it was the year the last time the Mets won the World (laughs) Series. You know, television was different then, kids. There were only three networks and... They did a lot of pilots, a lot. And there was a lot of money being thrown around. And they would sort of overpay you for these pilots. And most of them never saw the light of day. But by the time you you did your second or third pilot, you had a pretty big quote, as they call it. And they'd pay you a lot of money just to do that one pilot. And some people, that's all they did for the whole year, that one pilot. And then, And I would, you know... I would book a pilot a year. I never got any of the episodic. Very rarely did I get any of the episodics. And when I think about it, if I did, I was going out for five or 10 auditions a month and I booked two a year. So think about those odds. Not good. And that's what every actor faces, you know. So, yeah. And then, you know, eventually uh, one of those pilots went to air. It was called Herman's Head. It was on Fox, which was an upstart network. I was already on The Simpsons on Fox. Um, well, let me actually interrupt there for a second, because while you were still figuring out what sort of an actor you were and what life was going to be like out yeah. here, you started taking classes with this guy, Roy London. Yeah. And I believe that there was something that happened there that kind of made a profound impact on you. Roy was an amazing teacher, and I was not, like I say, I'm a mimic at heart, character man at heart. One of the things you, you discover when you try to actually act and not just be a comedian is that acting 
to at least some extent is being yourself in front of people, is being willing to sort of expose who you are. I became an actor because I didn't want to be myself. I wanted to be other characters and then I wanted to be Pacino or De Niro or Steve Martin, not Hexaria. Right. Some actors are really good at, like I went to Tufts with Oliver Platt. We did a lot of plays together. Oliver was as good when he was 19 years old as he is now at being Oliver in front of a camera or on stage. I was not. I was really uncomfortable. And Roy really helped me get over that. But it took, it took years. Like, literally, it wasn't like... I had to really stay with being okay with that. Well, he was really against the idea of you doing mimics cause he, or, or doing voices because I he knew that. I didn't do thing. any voices or any characters or any comedy, really. And it's got a little some, a comedic scene every once in a while. But basically, I was there just to try to be myself on stage. So how then, sort of ironically, does The Simpsons come about? Well, that I got The Simpsons before I got to Roy's class, and that's my comfort zone, is let me just be a voice and be funny, and you don't even know it's me. But definitely what was true is it in working with Roy and getting better as an actor, I think it made my Simpsons characters funnier and deeper. And I started, instead of just thinking, how would what's the funniest way this would sound? I started thinking about, well, what, what if I really were a cop having to deal with this and not just how, what's a funny way to say it as Chief Wiggum? Right. <laughs> so when The Simpsons came about, as you mentioned, Fox was sort of new on the scene. Did you have any sense that when you were going in for this, you were potentially signing up to do something special or it was just another audition? Well, at the time, James L. Brooks was already a legend and incredible. Fox was a brand new network, which was now network start. I think in the time that we've been chatting, four networks have started. <laughs> but then it was, as you, I'm sure you know, completely rare. It was insane, unheard of. So you didn't even think the Fox network would stick around, genuinely, yeah. let alone an animated primetime show on it. I mean, you're talking about the equivalent now of being some weird... I don't even know if there's a modern equivalent of how unlikely it seemed that anything was going to come out of that. That said, though, it was a rare moment where Jim Brooks didn't have to take any network notes because he was Jim Brooks. Mm -hmm. And we were able to just do what we wanted to do. And those writers were having an absolute field day, just feeling free to say what they wanted to say. And I certainly responded to it comedically. And I remember being at an L.A. film festival where they showed some of the, the one-minute bumpers to how the show originated on the Tracy Ullman show, and the crowd response was so enormous to it that I was like, well, this thing seems to be striking a chord. But even then, I, you don't think it's going to be popular or, or certainly then last. We're doing our 28th year. That's absurd. Yeah, that's I still don't even quite understand it or believe it. <laughs> how did your involvement with the show actually evolve? When you first went in, was it to do a specific voice or was it always intended to be multiple voices? The, I started out just auditioned for Mo, mm -hmm. the bartender, and then and did that. And the day that I auditioned, they had me walk over and record it. I had no idea what was going on. I hadn't seen a script at that point. I just saw those lines. <laughs> the next week they had me back and I did Chief Wiggum or an early version of him. I think the following week I did Apu. And each week, by the way, I thought that I was going to be fine. They didn't seem too happy with what I did. I was week to week. In, in the middle of the second season, they offered to make me a regular. It, by then, I was doing like five or ten characters. And can you explain for people just logistically how it works? Because what's the order of things? You're doing voices before animation? 
what's the time commitment? Just take us into what your your job you, is. Um, yeah, you record the voices first because you record it like you would a radio play, say, so that you're not a slave to any animator's timing or so that they can just... That's the way all animation's done, whether it's, you know, Lion King or Aladdin or whatever's out this word, Sausage Party or whatever. You record it first and then they animate to the takes they like. Then later you'll go back and you will, like with any movie, you'll loop it and put additional recording in. And in animation, it's very easy to loop because you, it's easy to reanimate a character's lips, mouth moving. Right. Since the beginning, Thursdays at 10 a.m., we do what's called a table read, where you sit around a table and read it out loud. And it's the first time the writers hear it and they rewrite based on what they hear. And you get, a you know, someone's timing it and clocking which jokes work and which don't. And they rewrite, and then Mondays we go in and record the first time. Usually we're all together. I live in New York now, so more and more over the, la over the years I record separately. or some, you know, Usually guest stars record separately, but it doesn't really matter. It takes about 6 to 12 months for a show to reach air. And in that 6 to 12 months, first it goes to animatic phase, which is a crude black and white version of it, and they'll kind of screen it. Once they've put together an audio version they like, and and then based on that they'll do another rewrite. You'll re-record to that. Then it'll go out to color. It come back. It comes back a couple of months later, colored and what looks like the show. They'll rewrite again. They probably do rewrites on the shows five or ten times in the course of a year on any given show. So any given week, I'm doing an original record, a table read, and a couple of shows that are old shows that we're re-recording. But for me, it's, you know, two to four hours a week. Pretty good gig. Not a bad gig. No. And for you, the voices that you that have become so associated with you, were they always there? Or, how, I mean, how did you find who these guys were to sound like? It just comes very easily? You know, you'd read it in a script, and sometimes it would be my own interpretation. Sometimes it was pretty obvious what they wanted. Sometimes I'd ask them, you know, they'll say, should sound like Bing Crosby or... <laughs> My process is, like I say, I'm a mimic, so they're either really good impressions of celebrities or family members or friends or people, but even a bad impression is a good character voice. Like Lou the Cop, for example, is, is kind of a bastardized Stallone. <laughs> now, it's not a pretty good Stallone, but it's a do Stallone from Rocky. I make it a little bit different, you know. I do a little more like this. But it's a good character voice. And it's somehow it, it's a black cop on The Simpsons. But, you know, Woody Allen used to talk about how early in his career, in, in his mind, he was doing a direct Bob Hope impression to the point where he thought people were going to call him on it. Like, who's this guy doing this Bob Hope impression? And I think a lot of actors in the mid-'80s, young actors, in their minds anyway, were doing Michael Keaton impressions. That was like, that was the way to be funny. Then a lot of guys did Tom Hanks impressions. Right. Now, actually, if what I've read is correct, it proved useful when you were a struggling actor out here. You wanted to go to a good restaurant or something? Yeah, I would occasionally call, usually as either Stallone or as Mickey Rourke, <laughs> and try to get a table. And sometimes it worked and sometimes it did not. But I'd call imitating them and claiming to be them to see if I can get a table. <laughs> is there one of these voices on Simpsons that you look forward to doing the most? Some are harder than others, like Duffman. Duffman is this guy. He's the promotional spokesperson for Duff Beer. Right. I have to save him for the end of a record because he blows my voice out after about two minutes of doing it. I don't enjoy that one, but it's kind of fun to do, but it, it can't sustain it. Yeah. 
I'm a big Jerry Lewis fan, so Professor Frank, <laughs> who of course is, you know, this character. Well, it's wonderful to be here, and I um, certainly enjoy the sound of my own voice. So I've chosen the right profession. I never get tired of doing that. Other people get tired of listening to it, I assure you. But the one you actually tap into personally the most is, is Mo? Well, I think he's, you know, Mo to me is the most elements of myself. He feels like he's a New Yorker. He's from Queens. He, he's been the most fleshed out, I think. I've done it the most. Yeah, it's probably closest to my heart. It's what I think of. And we were just chatting a moment ago and you were saying that had things gone a different way in your life, you might have actually, it might have been uh, yeah. Hank the bartender. And yeah, the I mean, I was a bartender like right. most struggling actors. You work in a restaurant and if I didn't get The Simpsons, I might still be Hank the bartender. I doubt it. I mean, I actually probably would have gone back to grad school and tried to do something else. I'm sure, I, I'm sure. But, you know, at least for a while anyway. It definitely, Simpsons enabled me to stop bartending. I can tell you that for sure. I, I imagine. And, and so I guess, is that the best, legacy of it that for a few hours a week you now basically can afford to be very choosy about what else you do yeah big time i mean that's you know it's so weird to have been doing the simpsons now for 28 years and been in show business for about 30 years professionally anyway and you know over time you get to really value the stability of a job and now i'm an older guy and i have a family and and not only that, what you just said, like how many times it's enabled me to maybe not take a, a, several jobs I would have rather not have taken, but I would have had to for the money, although I've done a couple of those anyway. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's given me a lot of, lot of freedom to just kind of... And in the last few years, I've really been aware of that and sort of developed my own projects that I love. And I'm, I literally can't afford to do yeah. that because of The Simpsons. One last Simpsons question. Have you ever gotten your voice insured? Because this is now as valuable to you as some Julia Roberts' smile is to her, or I guess somebody had their ass insured. I can't remember. Who I've had my ass Yeah, <laughs> J-Lo, yeah. that's what it was. Was it J-Lo? Yeah, yeah. Yes. It, 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 the short answer is yes. About 15 years ago, I was screaming, and I blew my voice out, which I'm susceptible to, but it was worse than usual. And for about a week, I was pretty throaty. And it really scared the shit out of me. And I realized, oh, my God, if I actually lost the ability to do these voices, I'd lose a lot of money. (laughs) And so, yeah, I had my voice insured. Nice. Well, okay. so what was very interesting to me, and I wonder if it was a conscious decision, but I think sometime around the mid-90s, you started to make your way into drama. And we can talk about doing the television producer for Robert Redford in the quiz show. There was... Gwyneth Paltrow's fiance in this modern day version of Great Expectations. And then maybe the crowning one of these, I guess, would probably be in the TV movie of Tuesdays with Maury. Was this a goal of yours to move away from comedy and show that you could do dramatic stuff as well? I wouldn't say it was a goal. I would say that it's the work that was born out of being in that class with Roy London. You know, Roy, he was a very passionate, awesome teacher and... One of the few acting teachers I ever encountered who was kind of egoless. Like, he wasn't doing it because he really wanted to direct, although he did some of that. He directed some Gary Shandlings. He was really a mentor to Gary Shandling back in the day as well. There were pretty amazing actors who came through that class. But, you know, Roy would say, like, 
I assume you all have studied, you have whatever technique you have, whether it's through your stand-up or you studied at Juilliard or you, or anything in between, or you did improv or you did Stanislavski or whatever it is you did. He said, this is about applying the stuff you've learned in a really practical way and bringing yourself to the role. And it's whatever works. I don't care if it's method here and improv there and who cares as long as it's what works, but it's about putting yourself in the role. And he said, you know, I get asked what this class is for. And he said, you know what this class is for? Working this way, he goes, when and if you find yourself across from De Niro or Meryl Streep or whoever, or Gene Hackman, you'll be able to do what they do, in my opinion, right? your own version of it. And I've been since fortunate enough to, you know, be across from Pacino. And I actually did a HBO film with De Niro where he plays Bernie Madoff. It'll be out next year That's on awesome. HBO. And I kept thinking of Roy as I was standing across from Robert De Niro. That was awesome. Yeah, no, so I, it wasn't a goal, but it was something I felt prepared for and really do enjoy doing. But I love to get to go from like, if I'm working heavily in a drama for a while, I really look forward to a comedy and vice versa. Well, and it was like, you know, right before Great Expectations was The Birdcage, which I think people always still very yeah. closely associate with you. And I guess just to stay on that for one second... Here you were with Mike Nichols, Lane May, Robin Williams, Nathan Lane, all these fellow kings of comedy. And I just wonder for you, A, what inspired this guy who was such a character? And B, was that a, a particularly memorable one for you? You know, again, I mean, Redford gave me a break in quiz show. I had done Herman's Head pretty much up to that point. And based off an audition, Redford cast me, which was pretty incredible. And based on seeing me in quiz show, Mike Nichols offered me the role in The Birdcage, which... Ended up, was started as a very small part and ended up growing into a larger role. The Birdcage was pretty out there. I remember working on a Guatemalan accent as best I could, and I kind of had two versions of the character. One was the one you ended up seeing, which was pretty flamboyant. Another one was a little more subtle. I ran both versions of the character by a friend of mine who happens to be a drag queen, mm -hmm. and he said both comedically and and believably yeah. he liked the version that ended up in the movie so that gave me the confidence to right. stick with that but even still shooting that movie i would start up awake in the middle of the night like what am i doing i, I can i very much might be offending latino people and gay people all in one shot here i hope that this is taken in spirit of like you know the love it's intended as and in the spirit of humor, and it mostly has been, which I'm well, and with for. with comedy, I guess that's always a risk, right? There were some people who were concerned about a poop. Yeah, still are, still are. Yeah, no question. You know, yeah, it is. It's so, and that's kind of my gig on a certain level. I definitely very much used to be is I do an accented character, and you know, whether it's Indian or Latino or Guatemalan or Cuban or French or English. I've done, you know, them all, and, and some are touchier than others, right. you know, for some good reasons. You've played a lot of gay characters. And a lot of gay characters, yeah. a lot of variations of gay men I have yes. definitely played, yeah. <laughs> I think one that's pretty underappreciated was Shattered Glass. Yeah, that was a good movie, Billy Ray. And the editor, so just to remind people, you're playing the editor of this guy who's... Playing a guy named Michael Kelly, who edited Stephen Glass, who famously plagiarized. It's a wild story, it's a... It's an excellent movie. I yeah. really recommend it. Not, you know, I, no, it is. I have a small part in it. And Michael Kelly, who ended up being killed 
in Iraq. Really? I think he was the first journalist to be killed in that war. I never put that together. Wow. And he was an amazing guy, Michael Kelly, a really sweet, smart man. And you'd met him to prepare for that? I talked to him on the phone a bunch. He got a lot of flack for the Stephen Glass stuff. And it really was not his fault. He was genuinely duped. But at the very least, you know, he was criticized for being that badly duped. But he still very generously talked to Billy Ray, the filmmaker, writer and filmmaker, talked to me. And it was really helpful to me to get inside his psyche. Like, I got to ask him, so what were you thinking at this moment? He was really generous. In terms of television series, aside from The Simpsons, you had tried a number of others before Huff. Yeah. And some of them were a little short-lived. We had... I if, think all of them if were. If not for sure. you, it was three episodes. Yeah. I think Stressed Eric and Imagine That were like two weeks. But Huff, which you were also a producer of, really hung on for a bit and became a favorite of critics and the TV Academy. And I just wonder how that one, which was dramatic, you know, crossed your radar. You know, again... Uh, I really don't understand. I still don't. Uh, I don't understand why I'm offered the stuff I'm offered. And I don't get why I'm not offered stuff I'm not. Like, why what, didn't they think of me for that? Right. And then they think of me. They do think, like, really, why did you think of me for that? <laughs> I, I really don't understand it. Right. I think partly that speaks to my career. I'm a character actor. Yeah. And on the one hand, I'm pigeonholable. On the other hand, I, and I'm very great. And as the marathon of my career continues, and I'm grateful for it, it's turned into a real asset. Like, now I can sort of, I'm sort of known for being that guy and can do a bunch of things, and I'm looking forward to what I get to do next. And I really don't know what that's going to be. Yeah, Huff, you know, I just thought it was good. You know, but really what all these things come down to is what you don't find very often is really good writing and really good people doing it. And when that comes across you, whether it's comedy, drama, you got a lead role, you got a small role, you go, yeah, I'll do that. And if you're lucky enough to be on The Simpsons, where you can not have to take too many money jobs, you just wait for those. And they're not that often. Or in the last five years, I've tried to start to develop my own stuff. I have a series for IFC coming out next year, a comedy series about a baseball announcer named Jim Brackmeyer. He talks like this, one of these (laughs) old-fashioned... Baseball announcers who can say pretty much anything they want as long as they give the count afterwards. So last night, folks, I spent a good deal of time with a lady of the evening, A. Hooker. Ibanez <laughs> swings and misses at a fastball 0-2. So we just finished shooting that in Atlanta, yeah, and that'll fantastic. be out next year, yep. based on a Funny or Die short that I did. So I've had really fun the last, you know, five, seven years trying to get that going and working on the honeymooners instead right. of you know taking jobs I would have right, rather right. not. Honeymooners, we should say for Broadway. That's going to be another Broadway musical for you. Working right? on a musical version of the honeymooners. I'm playing Ed Norton, and we're very very hopeful that we've been at it for years, and hopefully we will have a, a theater. It's amazing way Broadway works. You have to you wait in line yeah. like planes waiting to take off <laughs> right. uh, for a theater owner to decide they want to do your project. Right. So hopefully we'll be on Broadway next spring. Just one other Huff-related question. Yes. You got to reunite with Oliver Platt. Yeah. You worked with Blythe Danner, who yeah. I think won one or two Emmys she for that. won twice. And then also, and this is kind of sad, a very young oh, Anton. Anton Yelchin. Ugh. Crazy how, how it goes, right? Let me tell you something. Anton, again, he was such a beautiful kid and a sweet guy that, you know, that I know for very different reasons, but that... Robin Williams and Anton Yelchin should not be with us anymore 
I mean, look, anybody, it's tragedy to lose anyone. But honestly, two of the sweetest gems of people, it's horrible. I'll tell you something. Anton Yelchin, not only was he a great actor, but and a great guy and a sweet guy. His All I can do is think about his mom. I know any, any mother is going to be heartbroken, but he was the apple of her eye. Mm-hmm. And and they had a very loving, sweet relationship, very close relationship, and I, I can only imagine what she's going through. As I remember, she was in she and maybe the the father as well were Olympians who they were skaters, weren't skaters, they? Skaters, I think, I and like gave that. it up and came here for him to, you know, get out of Russia. But yeah. anyway, so you mentioned honeymooners, but that really is born out of the experience that you had doing Spamalot on Broadway, which was not only cool because it was doing Broadway, but because you are like the ultimate Monty Python guy, right? Oh, I'm huge. That was a dream come true on several levels, Spamalot. I mean, I'm as a huge Python fan, not just a fan. And of course, one of the things I imitated and memorized growing up, I joked around that by the time I hit you know, rehearsal hall and spam I was like, I've been off book since I was 14 years old, so I'm ready to go here, which right. wasn't really a joke. Right, right. And I've talked about how later in life, when I was doing the Holocaust drama, I was starting to get depressed, and, and Monty Python actually lifted me out of it. Not only that, but Saturday Night Live and Monty Python came on the scene about the same time when I was 11 or 12 years old. And they were both complete revelations to me that, you know, grown-ups could be that silly that smart and that ludicrous at the same time that comedy could take those forms it just blew our brains out and i rethought everything without even realizing at the time so to be able to do that and you know work with eric idol and mike nichols at the same time and And tony nomination and a tony nomination and one of the guys in that michael mcgraw who played patsy the guy who slams the coconuts together who follows king arthur around he and I would kill time backstage doing honeymooners routines. We just—he does an amazing Ralph Cramden. I do a pretty good uh, at Norton, eh? And he has an encyclopedic, ridiculous memory of all those routines, as do I. Another one I memorized growing up. And we would just kill time backstage, messing around. And when the honeymooners came across my radar, like seven, eight years ago, I was just like, from the beginning, I was like, "You've got it. Michael McGraw is your guy." for Ralph and we've been doing it now together workshops but now for a few years and I hope we get this going this is, we're looking at possibly early 2017 Again, spring of 17 yeah awesome. hopefully yeah all right so now I've got to ask you about this art form of its own that you're you've been nominated before for Emmys for doing this and and now again this year and that's guest acting and I just wonder if you can break down for people as somebody who has anchored his own series and who's done it that way, what's it like now to come into a universe whether, and I'm going to ask you in a moment specifically about Friends and Mad About You, which you, I think, got Emmy nominations for doing it on those as well, but guest acting. It's like everybody else around you knows each other. They've got their way of working with each other. Is it intimidating to just join an existing universe like that? I guess a little bit. In some ways, it's easier I've been, again, fortunate enough to be at this for so long that it's hard to remember anymore feeling uncomfortable doing anything. <laughs> the first day of work, whether it's your own series, I like guess a guest actor, as a supporting actor, in a small role, in a large role, is always, it's as nerve-wracking as any, you know, starting any job. Right. But sets have a certain rhythm and familiarity, and they're, they're like snowflakes. They're all different, but they're all also the same. 
you know, I'm mad about you. I, you know, my ex-wife, Helen Hunt, I had been, we were together. I was hanging around the set all the time anyway. And it was kind of like, since you're here all the time anyway, why don't you do a character? So I already kind of felt like part of the family over there. Right. You know, Matthew Perry was one of my closest friends when I came out to Los Angeles. So in a way, I felt like it was family over there too. And the show was super popular and... You know, I knew it really well, and it's you, you sort of know the world of the show by seeing it. Right. And then in Ray Donovan, you know, I got to watch the first season and really enjoy it, and it's really fun. In a way, it's kind of an advantage because you can sort of objectively look at the world of the show and go, oh, you know, here's what I feel like the show could use, an element of this or that, without, you know, there's not much guesswork involved. So let's just remind people, in the case of Friends, you were David, Phoebe's scientist ex-boyfriend. Right. And you first showed up in season one when it was blowing up yeah and then came back at the end what was the was the experience very different the two times every couple of years i'd come in and out they do a david episode so i sort of grew along with the show and it was it was always great and really fun i i, I worked with lisa kudrow on a couple other projects too and she's another really wonderful person to work with and did you know how it was going to work out no between i, I just Rudd? no i didn't the plan always was, I think, for, for Phoebe and David to end up together. And in the end, you know, the relationship with Mike, with Paul Rudd, I think worked out so well. And Paul Rudd is so awesome for so many obvious reasons that they ended up sort of making that the primary right. relationship. And I was sort of the, the cannon fodder, the grain of sand, right. irritating and making the pearl. But I, I actually was kind of emotionally invested. I was a little sad that, I, you know, that David didn't end up with Phoebe, but, you know, it's all good. <laughs> now, in the case of Mad About You, this is Nat, the dog-walking neighbor. This guy had his interesting way of speaking. Was that out of the blue, or was that based on something? No, that's based on a guy I knew growing <laughs> up in New York. Right. And a buddy of mine who talked like that, kind of, and I used to imitate. And again, uh, most of my characters either like folks I knew, family members, famous people. Right. It's either a pretty good impression of them or not a very good impression of them. But somebody I always found funny that sounded like that, yeah. All right, so Ed Cochran, Ray Donovan, you first show up in season two. How long at that point were you committing to be part of the show and how much did you know about Ed and where his story was going to go? I did a, a big, long story arc in season two. My first season, their second season. As far as I knew, that was going to be the, the beginning, middle, and end of it. And they, they pretty much laid out for me what was going to happen with the character that season. They, they knew, with some exception, because sometimes they adjusted as they go writing it. And then the response to the character was good. They wanted to bring me back the following year, which they did. But, you know, these things are really fluid. You know, I would hear, oh, I'm bringing back for nine. Oh, I'm going to do one episode. Actually, it's five. That tends to happen a lot over there. Ended up doing four or five, I think four in season three. And this, I did two only last season. My second one aired last night, in fact. I haven't seen it yet, but. And basically to prepare for this, you actually, I mean, for people who are still catching up, Ed Cochran's this FBI guy who, at least for a while, is an FBI guy and then encounters some issues. But you actually met with someone from the FBI to get in his Well, mindset. they had a consultant uh, over at Ray Don at the writing stage because they really wanted an FBI guy to start looking into Ray Donovan's activity, the local LA bureau chief right. to start looking into what was going on there. So they really consulted 
with him at the writing stage. And then I got to consult with him at the acting stage quite a bit. My storyline, he's now not a member of the FBI right, anymore. Right. So that doesn't factor in. Anymore. Can you compare and contrast, though, what it was like playing him when he was this official, you know, guy with real responsibilities versus now where he's sort of just blowing things up? Yeah. I mean, this is a guy who obviously always had this dark side. It came out in his work. It just was quite well hidden. Right. And to, let's say, a, a J. Edgar Hoover level of this guy's not what he appears to be. And he makes a few miscalculations in dealing with Ray Donovan that eventually bring out what a sicko he is and how far he's willing to go. And that brings him down publicly. And you keep thinking he's going to die as a result as well, but somehow he wiggles out of that. Right. And then now he, he's sort of full-blown, screw it, my life has been completely ruined. I might as well do whatever I feel like doing. My name couldn't be worse. You know, there's no, there's no reputation to lose anymore. Right. Everybody who's nominated for a guest acting Emmy is asked to submit one episode yeah. that sort of is the best representation of their performance. What is the one that you selected and why? You know, I'm pretty sure it was just the one I did the most in, yeah. which was the episode where I'm sort of putting together... He is a very good investigator. What most of these ex-FBI's goes to is they work for private security and corporate security. And he ends up stumbling across Ray and something he's into and he figures out a murder, which he is good at doing and always was, but then gets pretty twisted about what he wants to do with that information. Right, right. And there's an episode where he puts all that together and goes and grabs evidence and then tries to lean on Ray to leverage him over it, where I got to do a lot of twisted stuff. <laughs> <laughs> so this is your 12th Emmy nomination. I think you've won five for the I Simpsons. I believe I won five. I'm five for 12. That's listen, not bad. Not bad. For our baseball player, right, you'll I get take it all that. Fame, right. <laughs> Does an Emmy nomination still get you jazzed up? Of course. Yeah? Yeah, because it's like, it's really nice to be recognized. The cliche is it's an honor just to be nominated. And then, you know, the joke is, oh, yeah, but everybody wants to win. And, and But the truth is really that it actually is an honor just to be nominated because it's can't always count on what's going to happen that year, whether you win or you won't. But to be singled out is like, these are the five or six best things we thought happened this year. It, it really is nice. and Especially it's at a time when there's, as you were saying, so much TV yeah. now. Like, yes. A ton of it. Exactly. Is there more guest acting in your future on or off Ray Donovan? Well, I yes. You know, again, whether it's guest acting, supporting, lead, a story arc. Right. If the writing's good, if the character seems fun, of course. How was it left, though, for you with Ray Donovan? Is your expectation that you'll, you'll be back? You know, uh, it's always a scheduling thing with me there. I have no contract in place. I literally love doing the show, love it, and love the character. And it's as simple as, like, for me, if the Honeymooners goes next year, right. I don't think I'll have time. Right. If it doesn't, I'll be begging them to put me in whatever they feel like. Right. As far as The Simpsons, any idea what the future holds for that? And how do you think you'll feel when one of these years they decide, you know, that's enough? Will, yeah. Is that going to be a hard one to say goodbye to? It totally. I mean, more than half my life I've been doing it. I still love doing it. And I still think... A lot of the shows we do per year are really funny and relevant and awesome. And it 
it's a big joy still in my life, you know, professionally and personally and financially. <laughs> you know, I think that we're recording season 28 right now. We're contracted through season 30, although it's not officially picked up through season 30, but I'm fairly certain we'll probably do it that long. Beyond that, I really don't know. And yeah, I'm sure I'll have all kinds of emotions about it ending. But you know, show business, it is, I I'd hardly could be in a position to complain like, right. oh, my show got canceled <laughs> after, after 30, 30 years. years. <laughs> I mean, you know. So last question is this. What's left on your list of things that you haven't yet done, but you still want to do? I know working with De Niro was on that list. Yeah. That's gone. Is there any other project or person or accomplishment that's still on the to-do list? You know, I really love this IFC series I just finished. And I, we're just, I'm about to go to the editing room over there. And the first, I've seen the first two of the eight and I'm cautiously very optimistic. I'm really happy with how those have turned out. I'd love to keep doing that. And it's, you know, you mentioned a lot of my failures I've had is in comedic series is finally, if nothing else, I feel like what I really wanted to do and what I can do got represented in a comedic show that I'm the center of. Yeah. That was exciting. I feel like doing Ed Cochran's been awesome for me because people don't usually think of me as as this weird psycho heavy. And I think it led to me getting this role with De Niro. And I'm not aware of that for sure, but I'd love to continue in that vein of characters that are that have my voice ostensibly, but are very different from myself and maybe a little twisted. I just, you know, I, I worked with Jack Lemmon on Tuesdays with Maury, as you mentioned. He was towards the end of his life. He was actually quite sick, which we didn't realize at the time. And he, as a result, he was very open personally and professionally. And he talked a lot about remaining a student of the craft, even in your old age, which he considered he was. And I feel that way. Like, I feel really fortunate. I enjoy more the work I get to do than I did even when I was 25. And I'm really grateful that that's how I feel about it. And that So whatever it is, that I get to keep doing it is really kind of the reward for me. Plus, they pay me. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Thank Try. you. Grand Canyon University makes earning your degree possible with over 130 academic programs for traditional campus students with more than 80 bachelor's programs offered online. GCU provides you with the personal support you need from complimentary unofficial transcript evaluations within 24 business hours to scholarships, academic support, and your GCU graduation team led by your own university counselor. Find your purpose at GCU. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu.